Everybody knows the deal is rotten. Old Black Joe's still picking cotton for your ribbons and bows. Everybody knows that the dice are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows the good guys lost. Welcome to the Lifeboat Hour, Friday, August 14, 2015. As climate chaos and abrupt climate change continue to rule the day around the world. We're constantly bombarded with the reality of climate change, but today we're going to go deeper into the topic with my guest, and you too will have an opportunity to enter the conversation as we open the lines to callers later in the show. Now, this week, the website Climate Central posted a story entitled, U.S. Cities Face a Coming Surge in Danger Days, meaning that climate change is about to push U.S. cities into a new period where dangerously hot and humid days become more common. This week also saw the restarting of the first nuclear reactor in Japan since the Fukushima disaster. <clears throat> Excuse me. Also this week, the Environmental Protection Agency in the United States was behind an environmental disaster that resulted from the accidental discharge of 3 million gallons of toxic sludge into the Animas River in southwestern Colorado. Now, this affects 1,400 miles of river water in the American Southwest, seven states, and 40 million people. The Animas flows into the San Juan River, which flows into the Colorado River, from which millions of people, including all of Southern California, get their drinking water. Along the way of the flow of toxic sludge, the Animas River provides water for farmlands and drinking water for residents of Colorado, New Mexico, and Arizona. The Navajo Nation was profoundly affected, not only in terms of drinking water, but in terms of losing a source of water for their farm animals. Many members of the Navajo Nation must now travel 20 to 30 miles to get water to haul in for their livestock. One of the reasons for the ghastly magnitude of this tragedy is the reality of severe droughts in the American Southwest, and especially the epic four-year drought in California. Climate change is drying up water sources on the planet, and at the very same time, humans are making many of those sources unusable. The state of the climate worldwide is dire, and in many places, the Earth community is on life support. One man who knows a great deal about catastrophic climate change is with us today to talk more in depth and to share his own experience and wisdom regarding climate change. He has a very strong presence on Facebook, where you will frequently see his postings, particularly if you're familiar with the Near-Term Human Extinction Support Group on Facebook. The person I'm referring to is Kevin Hester. And those of you listening live, uh, just to let you know, we'll be taking callers later in the show, and you can call us at 888-874-4888. Now, Kevin is a member of the Irish diaspora, born in New Zealand to Irish parents displaced from Ireland by the British occupation, 
and his family's involvement in the resistance, hence his anti-colonial, anti-imperialist political perspective. He became involved in the early 1980s in the environmental movement in New Zealand, which was heavily influenced by anti-nuclear activities. And then he went on to have, uh, well, those activities actually went on to have uh, New Zealand declared a nuclear-free zone. He was once arrested with, uh, the Peter, with Peter Wilcox, the skipper of the Greenpeace Rainbow Warrior, and charged with, quote, obstructing a nuclear ship in the course of its passage, unquote. He's very proud of the charge and beating the rap, yet saddened by the later triple meltdown at Fukushima Daiichi and the untold millions of radionuclides now pouring into the atmosphere and cascading into his beloved Pacific Ocean. He went on to become a private yacht skipper and delivering yachts around the Pacific Ocean and the Mediterranean Sea. He has 16 ocean passages under his belt and hull. In recent years, he reluctantly came to accept the inevitability of the imminent collapse of the biosphere after initially noticing the oceans dying, with the first indicator being the loss of flying fish and seabirds on his latter ocean passages. After being woken up by the changes happening in the ocean, he started looking further and came into contact with the work of Michael Rupert and Professor Guy McPherson and, of course, naturally, the Lifeboat Hour. Most of his waking hours are either spent enjoying the ocean and natural habitat and watching the unraveling from within or researching online and endeavoring to warn as many people, especially youth, about the impending apocalypse as he possibly can. Hence, his organizing Professor Professor McPherson's New Zealand tour in October 2014. Welcome to the Lifeboat Hour, Kevin Hester. Carolyn, it is is an absolute honor and pleasure to be on the Lifeboat Hour with such an incredible history that it has. Thank you very much for the opportunity to speak with you all. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the Lifeboat Hour, Kevin, and uh, Skyping in. And I don't know what time it is there, but probably some ridiculous hour, yes? Yes, I'm I'm in the bottom of the South Pacific, 36 degrees south, and it is 6 a.m. New Zealand time. Okay, well, that's not too bad. I thought you might be saying 3 a.m. or something awful like that. <laughs> no, uh, it's very civilized. And for, for us yachtsmen, we work on a 24-hour day. We're up and down all at all times of the day. So for me to get up and do my watch at 4 a.m. is absolutely n- not unusual at all. Okay. Well, Kevin, you've been working to raise awareness regarding climate change, not only in your part of the world, but certainly on Facebook in recent years. And last year, you sponsored a tour in New Zealand with Guy McPherson, and you made a courageous presentation to the Environmental Ministry of New Zealand. I'm going to ask you about that presentation in a moment, but first, I want to go back in time to when you first awakened to catastrophic climate change. Tell us more about how that happened. Yeah, absolutely. In all those yacht trips that I did, one of the things that you do as a yachtsman is you observe. You're spending your whole time looking, and you're looking for the good, the bad, and the ugly. You're making sure that the, the ship that you're sailing on is safe, and that that reflects on the planet that we're living on. It's the same thing. We're all on this ship, and we either, we, we either stay afloat or we all go down together. 
the the interesting thing about the flying fish was that it is a re- it was a really tangible, visible way that you could see the changes in the ocean. You know, you don't know what's happening. One of the problems that we have with the with the polar ice caps and with the oceans is that all the change, all the climate change, is happening in the bottoms of the oceans and at the poles, but there is no one there. So it's out of sight and out of mind. And most of the people that I see walking around now, instead of looking up at the sky and how beautiful it is or noticing the tides coming in and going out, they're looking at screens. And I understand why they're doing that because that's the dominant culture in, in that we're all living now. But it is very distracting and it, and it, is, it removes people from the natural environment. So in all of that's in that sailing, these changes with the not seeing as many seabirds and watching the albatross absolutely disappear and then not having the the um, flying fish landing on the boat. It was just in a big alarm that was ringing. And I admit to being distracted like most other people. I had my busy life. I was sailing. I wasn't I wasn't able to to join the dots and concentrate. And then four years ago, I had an accident where I fell off a ladder working at a university in Auckland, and I badly damaged my hands. And that's grounded me as an ocean sailor. I can't sail anymore. So one one of that, those really significant parts of my life is now over. And as a result, it gave me an opportunity to to join those dots, do more research online, be less distracted from you know those other parts of my life and and join these um these different things that have been yelling out and screaming at me i added them all up and i thought okay we are really in trouble and that's when you know mike rupert you, your work uh guy mcpherson and we have a, a wonderful uh bloke in new zealand who you know uh, robin westerner and he has a fantastic blog called Rob, robin oh, absolutely Westerner. yes <laughs> yes, and and Robin has been covering this in, in, uh, amazingly, and through through those connections and the internet, I was able to um, join the dots and learn the bad news in the totality that I know it as. And you know, I think it's important for us all that who are covering this to realise we only know the tip of the iceberg. It's a lot worse than we know. That's absolutely true, and uh, I'd like you now to go ahead and talk to us about the presentation that you made to the Environmental Ministry of New Zealand. Okay, we we had a a submissions process happening about uh, six weeks ago where you had the opportunity to present a a written submission to the ministry, and then they had a series of public meetings that – we were able to talk and they were going to take the information, make, take notes and submit that to the minister with, for him to consider. Now that's the, that's the, the official policy on it, but I believe it was actually a complete sop and they put those public meetings on as, as a pretense to consultation. I don't believe for a second that they paid any attention to anything that was said or I, I believe that their whole policy had been predetermined, and it is the charade of democracy. But I got up and spoke, and I described the, the situation that we're confronted with as being a planetary emergency. And I said, I want New Zealand to show the kind of leadership that we've so, shown in the past. There's a little nation at the bottom of the world where we're the, we're the first country to ever give women the vote. And, you know, give women the vote? 
the, the expression itself is wrong. We didn't give them. They took that vote. Right. They were denied that vote. They fought back and they wrenched it out of the hands of the patriarchy. So that was one thing that happened. And then we became the first nation on the planet to declare itself nuclear free. And I really want to reiterate, I had a very tiny, tiny part to play in that. But everybody who played a part in it now has that as a legacy that they are achieved. And I would like to, you know, even in these dire times, I'd like to encourage people that they should always keep fighting back and pushing back. Our community that believe that that we have pushed past the point of no return and that we're facing near-term human extinction, we're often lambasted by people who, who say that we've given up. That is a complete and utter misrepresentation of our position. What we're, what we're doing is we're accepting the situation and how dire it is, and we're trying to raise the alarm. You know, what my objective about being on the show and, and doing these kind of presentations is I want to, talk, I want to speak the truth to the youth. Well, I'm wondering, Kevin, um, and, and I want to say, I want you to say more about speaking truth to the youth in a moment, but um, that was such a brilliant presentation that you did, and I'm wondering where we can find it. Do we have to go to Facebook, or is it on YouTube yet, or tell us about that. Yes, no, it it is on YouTube. I've uploaded it, and um, you can find it there. If you just look for search my name, Kevin Hester, you'll find me. Kevin Hester, H-E-S-T-E-R. If you just just put that in the search for YouTube, you should be able to find his presentation, right? Yes, absolutely. And if you, it's it's a headline, the Ministry of um, Public Submission to the Ministry of Environment. You should find it easy enough. Okay, very good. Uh, Now, your neighbor to the West, Australia, has a prime minister, Tony Abbott, who absolutely, totally denies climate change. And it looks like his country is burning up. I'm sure you have something to say about that. Please have at it. Absolutely. Uh, I'll quote uh, Tony Abbott, who everyone refers to in the South Pacific as Tony Dum Dum. I'll quote him. His, His quote, only from a few months ago, and it's important to remember it's very recent, was that climate change is crap. Well, that tells you a hell of a lot about Tony Abbott and about the, the, the skipper at the controls of that yacht or that ship. He, he, they're in complete denial. Their, their economy is, is very much hinged around the exploitation of the natural resources of Australia. It's a, a mining uh, a mining economy, and it's tanking at the moment because most of the those kind of mining resources, coal and all the different metals that they export, and of course the yellow cake uranium, they're the world's major producer of ura- yellow cake uranium, those have all tanked because the the Chinese economy, which is the the slave manufacturing capital of the planet, has tanked as well. And I, I think that I'll segue a little bit to that. One of the reasons why China's emissions have dropped, they, people have been talking about that, and the emissions have dropped because the exports from Australia of all those minerals and resources have tanked because people aren't buying it. Capitalism's in terminal crisis. China's production has dropped. Australia's exports have dropped, and its economy is in trouble. It's been booming for many years, and now their economy is in trouble. Yeah, well, capitalism's in trouble all over the planet. Uh, that's kind of good news for the planet, don't you think? It is, and it isn't. One, 
one of the problems that we have now is that we've got this. We're we're in what um, Guy McPherson says in his presentations is the monkey trap, where we have our hands on the fruit and we can't get our hands out of the trap, and the fruit is carbon. One 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 presentation I'd, I'd suggest that people look at online is about global dimming. Guy, when I first came into in contact with Guy, he used to talk about the only the only thing that would save us was the the collapse of industrial civilization. But what's happened now is that there are so much pollutants, soot, and sulfate up in the atmosphere that it is fundamentally reduced the amount of solar radiation or sunlight that's getting through to the to to the earth, and that our our pollution is helping cool the planet. When 9-11 happened in the United States and two buildings collapsed and the, all of the American uh, aeroplane fleet was was grounded for a few days, there was an instantaneous one-degree spike, one-degree C spike in global temperatures. If we had a massive collapse tomorrow of industrial civilization and all of the, all of the uh, thousands of coal coal power stations that are pumping out sort of to the atmosphere stop and all the industrialization stop the cloud the skies would clear the sun would get through and we would have a massive spike in temperature and it would be another positive reinforcing feedback loop that would speed us up so there's actually no way out of this now well you know i I want everyone to really wrap take a moment Breathe and wrap your mind, if you can, around what what Kevin just said. Uh, pollution is cooling the planet. Oh my God! You know, it's like which drug do you want to take to die and overdose? And Absolutely. This is, this now is just it is really a, a really a lottery. We're going down. I, I, I use the analogy of the skip of the Titanic and being a skipper. Our ship is sinking. There is no way that we can stop it. We are holed and going down. And what happened on the Titanic was was the glitterati and the and the, the bourgeoisie were on the top decks, still drinking champagne as the sink, ship was sinking, and they were listening to the music, and they were still literally living the high life, while all of the working people the blue-collared people who could have been doing something productive were still locked down below. It's a great analogy for the planet. The, the, the elites in this planet know that we're sinking and they're preparing, but with champagne in hand, they're preparing. And most of the people are being kept in the dark. And I think the role of us now as citizen journalists is to try and shine light on that darkness and crack those doors open and get those people out on the Titanic, what they could have done was they could have got all those tradesmen and, and practical working people out of the hold, and they could have started building rafts with all of the beautiful teak furniture that was on the boat. That means they could have had supplementary places for people to get on when they got into the water, because as most people know, there weren't enough life rafts on the Titanic for all the people. They'd mis- miscalculated, probably deliberately, so they could have less of them. So what they could have done was rafted up all of those, that furniture and tied them alongside the, 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 the life rafts that were, they were able to launch. And more people could have lived longer because the thing that killed people in the Titanic was that once you get in that cold water, you die very quickly. 
I'm not saying that the life rafts we could be building now would keep people alive, would save us, but they would keep people alive longer and we could be preparing for the Armageddon that's coming. But instead of doing that, they are bullshitting us and they're telling us that, oh, yeah, it's 100 years from now. Don't worry about it. Oh, yeah, Miami will flood, you know, that that's all going to happen at the end of the century. So that gives people a false sense of security and, and it allows us to keep kicking the can down the, down the road. But I don't believe there'll be a human being on the still walking on this planet who will get to see New York flooded or Miami underwater. I think our biosphere will collapse so quickly that the, the, the rising sea levels won't be the issue. It will be the loss of habitat, flora, and fauna. Wow, uh, this is this is an enormous topic, and uh, I, I want to get to what some of the scientists are saying in a moment, and how there's some of them are changing their tune a bit. But I'd like you to tell us how you met Guy McPherson and became so passionate about waking up other people to our predicament. I will be eternally grateful to Robin Westenra because. Both you, Mike Rupert, and Guy came to me via Robin because Robin is such a stalwart campaigner in New Zealand. And through him, I saw him posting and, and, and conversing with Mike Rupert and with Guy, and he brought, them, brought those people into my lives. But one of the reasons why I'm so motivated is because I am the luckiest person you know, Carolyn. You, you've never met anyone luckier than me. I was born to two wonderful egalitarian uh, Irish people, and because of the circumstances of my of my family, my fa- my father's family was destroyed because they resisted the British occupation. And he, his two older, two three older brothers actually, had to escape from Ireland and go to the United States, where they did well and 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 made good. But they had to run away because they were being hunted by the black and tans, the, 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 the Irish control police at the time. And as a result, my parents had you know, decided they were going to leave and, and they came to New Zealand. So I got born into this absolutely extraordinary country. But it has a, it has a terrible history like every country where our indigenous people were, were oppressed, robbed and disenfranchised from their their, their, their uh, Papatua Nuku, their Mother Earth. And I, I'm, a, I'm a son of effectively some form of refugee that came to this country. And my, my dad used to tell us when we were kids, we were brought up in a, in a, a staunchly anti-racist um, house. And dad always used to say to us, whenever the subject of racism came up, he, he would say, son, you just remember, us Irish are the blacks of Britain. <laughs> so, so you know that's that's where those origins come from for me. So then, uh, a few years ago, you you met Guy through Robin, and then you started to communicate with Guy, and you ended up sponsoring uh, his coming for a tour to New Zealand last last fall. Correct? It, it was, and I've been as I said, I've been so lucky. I think one of the most most productive things that I've done in my life was to bring Guy McPherson to New Zealand. And 
a lot of people would go, oh, no, that's such a big exaggeration. And, you know, we only had so much push through. But I think it, it's what it is. It is a tipping point. Bringing Guy to New Zealand was a tipping point. I had a man come up to me in the street uh, just recently. I'm involved in, in organizing uh, – um, a resistance movement against the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement that is being forced on us in New Zealand. And these faux trade agreements are being forced everywhere. And, and it, I, I'll also just make the point that people say that, you know, us believers in the NTHE have given up. I'm fighting as, the, as our planet is sinking and our biosphere is unraveling. I'm fighting against the trade agreement that effectively in 10 years won't even if they get it passed it won't have any effect but we carry on and 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 pushing back as best we can so yeah i think it's important to that's that's today we've got this massive demonstration we're hoping to have ten thousand people in auckland today uh fighting back against the trans-pacific partnership agreement well with with all of that activity going on i certainly appreciate your taking the time to be with us it makes it even more valuable (laughs) We yeah. just we just have to all fight back until the last moment and and speak. One of the things that will happen at the end of the march today is that there will be an open mic, and I will take the mic and I will draw the connections between the Trans-Pacific Partnership and and climate change because these agreements are, are actually they're a corporate coup against the people of the world, and what will happen is we. If it got passed, if our, if our um, traitorous government passed it, what they would do is they, they would bring in rules that would stop us from, from banning, you know, like one of the things I would like to do is I think we should have a, a global moratorium on climate, on um, oil exploration, because we can't burn the oil that already exists on the fossil fuel books now. So why on earth would we be looking for more? But if if New Zealand had a progressive government and we passed a law saying, okay, no more no more exploration, the oil companies would be able to sue our government in international tribunals where they could they could overturn democratically made decisions in our parliament and the corporations could decide what was gonna pass or not. And we all know that these corporations they're a hotbed and a, and a vortex of so, sociopathy and psychopathy. If you look at the top of most corporations, they're run by one or the other of those two ill, uh, Ill people. So I, as part of my fight against climate change, I'm fighting the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement. Absolutely. That makes total sense. Um, for those listening, I'm talking with Kevin Hester of New Zealand, and if you want to ask a question of Kevin or me or make a comment, please call us at 888-874-4888. So, uh, Kevin, you, you're also very passionate, as you said earlier, about waking up the youth. Tell us more about that. Young people have historically been lied to. We grow up and we're taught, we're taught all sorts of fictions. We're, we're taught that there was there's some almost always Anglo-Saxon-looking white man up in the sky that created everything and is looking benignly down on us. And if we comply to one or other um, tenets of what that white man has said or what that 
And it is always a man. It's important to remember that it's the patriarchy again. It's always a male up there. What I want to do is I want young people – I don't want to lie to young people. I don't want to tell them that everything's going to be all right. I don't want to tell them that there's a tooth fairy. I don't want to tell them that Santa Claus put the presents on their end of their bed. I want to tell them the truth. And the truth is is that all the generations before now have been complicit and and have played their part in incinerating the biosphere. In less than 200 years, one species on this planet has put in, in train a catastrophic sequence of events that has now reached some of the last tipping points and it is going to unravel spectacularly quickly. What I would like to tell those young people is first and foremost, I am sorry that I have been unable to, to do my part to stop it happening. But I want to say to them, Prepare for the Armageddon that's coming. Don't go and learn professions like IT and, and law. I'm, I'm not saying IT or lawyers or doc or doc or no, obviously not doctors, but accountants. I'm not saying that they're not important because we still need to infiltrate the dominant culture and we need people in those professions. But more importantly, I think young people should learn how to grow things, make things, fix things. And cook things because there's no guarantee that you're going to be able to pick up a phone or get online and get someone to come and fix your broken things. And there's no guarantee that that the trucks and trains that are carting food into our mega cities today are going to arrive tomorrow. So I would like the young people to get into permaculture. I'd like them to get into trades and I'd like them to get real about what's happening and they're not going to get real if we keep bullshitting and telling them prepare for prepare for a, a lifetime of being a cog in the in the capitalist wheel and when you get to 60 you can retire and live the good life there is no good life for them i'm really apologetic i'm sorry i've i've dropped the ball well i'm apologetic too kevin and wherever i go and deal with young people um, i make it a point to apologize because uh, whether we started this consciously or not, um, we certainly have been part of it. We have all been complicit. And I so honor your willingness to, uh, to, to tell the truth to young people. Now, on another topic, uh, you've been talking a great deal about the convergence of climate scientists and uh, James Hansen's unique decision to release most of his recent science paper prior to peer review and climate scientist Michael Mann's concession that we've now entered a time of exponential change in the climate system, uh, which is a position he didn't hold in September of last year when you spoke with him prior to bringing Guy McPherson to New Zealand for, for McPherson's tour. So I'd like you to elaborate on these monumental changes with these two climate scientists and take plenty of time to do that. Excellent. Thank you. Let's deal with James Henson first. James Henson has breached, has completely, completely breached protocol and etiquette by releasing that paper without peer review. And the reason that I believe he's done that is because he recognizes the sense of urgency that is that the situation has. And the fact that Michael Mann has made this this change just recently is really significant as well because yes, it's it's only since September that he said to me no, he didn't he didn't think that. But one 
one thing I'm very concerned about with the Michael Mann situation is Mike came out and said that it had gone now gone exponential, but he's still talking about that we can fix it. Well, I suggest people do some research on the exponential function because once something goes exponential, it unravels so fast, it's, it's at light speed. So it the, sounds like the, uh, man can't quite go there yet to where, to where you are or even perhaps maybe where Hanson is. Yes, there is that psychological barrier where people are, are frightened. I'm not. I'm. I'm careful not to cast aspersions on scientists as individuals, but they work in this community that is spectacularly conservative. And when Michael Mann came out with his hockey stick theory, he was pilloried and attacked by the fossil fuel fools who paid trolls to literally attack him online, and it was you know spectacularly. Um, brutal for him and what it did was it sent out a message to all the other scientists be careful what you say or we will attack you James Wadhams came out recently and 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 he's he's been doing this uh, sorry not Peter Wadhams sorry excuse me right he did a he did a great interview just recently on on um extinction radio and he was misquoted where he he talked about some climate scientists who died under um, suspicious circumstances. And the, the, the article that quoted him made it sound like he said that they had been murdered. They, they, they hadn't been. Most of us don't believe that for a second. But what they did do is they tried to make him look like he was a, a crackpot saying that. And this is, what, this is what the empire will do. The empire will try and, and, and discredit Everyone now who comes out and talks about how, how bad this is, they've moved the goalposts where we've gone from saying, only a very short time ago, most of them were saying that climate change was crap, quote our Australian Prime Minister. But now they're saying, oh, yes, it's here, but it's going to be a problem in 2100. Now, my answer to that is, that is crap. It is a problem right now. We're at, at presently we're at one degree C above baseline. Baseline being the beginning of the industrial uh, re- revolution, and we look around and we see utter chaos everywhere. Where we've got millions of acres burning in Siberia, millions of acres have already burned in the United States, and I'm not ta- I'm not exaggerating when I say that. That's the statistics, and these scientists like Henson are coming out and they know that things are, are very, very dire. And that's why he broke that etiquette and, and spoke out. Yeah, it, it really sounds like, uh, yeah, I'm surprised about him. And I'm, I'm also surprised about uh, Michael Mann's conservative approach after all this time. You know, there was an article, which I'm, I'm sure you're aware of, uh, in Esquire magazine last month called um, When the End of Civilization is Your New Day Job. And it was about the climate scientists, uh, and Michael Mann was one of them, and Hansen was another, uh, who, who were expressing their despair uh, with the information that they're putting out um, but I wasn't aware that uh, that man is still holding out for, well, we can fix this. It, it's extraordinary. Uh, Guy McPherson and I and Robin Westerner had a discussion about that, about exactly that yesterday. And uh, Robin's posted that on his blog where how can you say it's gone exponential 
and then say we can fix it. Right. We we cannot fix that. I'm I'm not a a scientist. I, I don't have the depth of science knowledge that Michael Mann has. But what I do know is I know sailing. I know how to take a vessel from anywhere in one part of the world to anywhere else on the other part of the world. If you told me what the, the, the local bay that you is nearest to your house, I could get on a boat and sail it to there, and I could arrive on your doorstep. But on the way, what I have to do is manage risk and, and follow the precautionary principle at all times. When I see a storm coming, I have to prepare for the absolute worst storm that can be. Not for, oh, it'll be okay. I have to prepare for the worst. When my ship gets hold and it's sinking, I have to determine, okay, what's the priority on my vessel? Is it the vessel and the capital value of it? Or is it the people on board? As that skipper, I have the the lives of all of those people in the palm of my hand. My ultimate responsibility is to get the, the, the youngest and most vulnerable of those people safe first. And then I have to get the weakest and the oldest at, uh, and the most infirm safe. And then I have to make sure that the last strongest people who have helped do all that are safe. And then it is my turn. As the skipper, I come last. If my ship sinks... I have to take responsibility. If I'm asleep in my cabin and my crew go off course and hit a reef, it's my fault. It's not the crew's fault. I put the wrong crew at the helm. It's the skipper's fault. What we're having on our planet is our leaders, big inverted commas, aren't taking responsibility. It's their bloody fault. And then... and. This is the trouble with the capitalist system and the vortex of sociopathy and psychopathy that it sucks to the top. They aren't the kind of individuals that take responsibility. They're not like us. They're not standing up and saying, it's my bloody fault. They're pointing the finger at each other. It's a bloody disgrace. Folks, this is really juicy information that Kevin Hester is giving us. And if you have a question about it or you want to make a comment, call Kevin and ask a question of him or me at 888-874-4888. Now, yes, and in addition to what you're telling us, Kevin, climate scientist, uh, Canadian climate scientist Paul Beckwith has given a recent chilling analysis of changing atmospheric and oceanic weather patterns in the North Pacific. Can you tell us more about these events? Absolutely. What we, we, we have completely changed the chemistry of the atmosphere and of our oceans. And as a result, all of the norms that we used to know are changing. Our oceans are becoming hypoxic and acidic, and everything in them is dying. We've heated the atmosphere up so much that the 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 the, the air patterns up in the in the in the stratosphere are collapsing. Both they are collapsing, and, and the Gulf Stream is collapsing. Paul Beckwith uh, had information where he he was able to prove that sometime last year the Gulf Stream stopped very briefly, but it did stop, and there is a historic. Um, information that that has happened before but what's look it's looking like now is that we're we probably 
completely changed it to such a degree that we've changed the 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 Gulf Stream, we've changed the ocean currents, and we've trained the wind, changed the wind patterns in the sky. And and what that's done is that you, in, in the United States, you've seen polar type weather come down and hit the continental US. And then that's that's given the, the naysayers and the deniers the opportunity to go, oh yeah, what happened to your global warming where we've got all this snow and 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 one moronic senator Ihofe on I can't pronounce his name, I don't know Inhofe. his name exactly. Yeah, I know who you Inhofe. Mean. He walks into your Congress with a with a um a snowball in his hand. That's right. the pathological behaviour that we're dealing with with these leaders, where they are prepared to to misrepresent the situation. It's, it's well, so, speaking, it's so speaking stunning, of our leaders, um, one of the Sorry things I know you're following are the geopolitical events connected with abrupt climate change. And one of those is the reality that the U.S. government and military are describing climate change as a great uh, threat multiplier and are obviously uh, preparing for what you're now referring to as the great unraveling. And likewise, the Russian military are expanding their port and military presence in the Arctic uh, as it becomes more and more accessible to them, which you believe will lead to a series of habitat wars, which will make the end times for both humans, uh, for humans both brutal and reflective of our weakness as a species. Uh, if this, if these increased militarization efforts continue, then we can expect a very daunting future in terms of these responses to abrupt climate change. And I'd really like you to take plenty of time to comment on this. Absolutely, I'm happy to do that. If if people want to learn more about this, I would suggest they they uh, Google or search Dar Jamal, D A H R J A M A I L. Dar is is in my opinion the world's leading journalist covering the convergence between the unraveling of our biosphere and the collapse of the economic system and the political order. Where what we're seeing at the moment is. The, the empire I call them, which is the Anglo-Zionist empire, is stalking Russia. And pe- a lot of people were wondering, why would you push Russia so hard at the moment? There's been a military coup, not a military, there's been a coup take place in Ukraine last year where a, the first card-carrying fascist government in Europe since General Franco was overthrown in Spain has come to power. We all know what happened the last time that Fascism was in power in Europe. 50 million people died. We've got this convergence of the, the re-rise of fascism and the unraveling of our biosphere. Da talks about the, the Pentagon discussing climate change as a threat multiplier. What I believe is happening is that they are positioning themselves for the collapse of habitat. I, I used to make a joke with Guy McPherson when he came to New Zealand. In a lot of his presentations over the years, he said that New Zealand will be one of the last habitable places on the planet just because of its geographical um, coincidence that it's in the southern hemisphere where there is the least amount of land and the least amount of people and the least amount of emissions. And Guy believes that New Zealand will be one of the last places where humans will be habit- inhabiting. What does that tell you? That tells you that we will be in big demand and that I, what I believe will happen 
is we will wake up in the very, very near future and there will be martial law in New Zealand and we will become the 51st state of the United States. Now, that'll sound outrageous to a whole lot of people, but when you consider that they're invoking this Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, which takes away all our civil rights and hands them over to the corporations that are behind that empire... That, that is the, the precursor to that martial law. We had a situation a few years ago in New Zealand where a, a local community in the Uruwera National Park uh, was, was shut down and virtual martial law was invoked on them because of the behaviour of the few people in the community who were doing sort of – they were out in the bush doing some kind of military drills and they were training themselves to be security safety officers or security officers, and they were doing it in a, in a classic New Zealand way. And the government, instead of just sending down the, – sending the local policemen to their door and talking to them about it, they sent a, a, an actual military operation of – of armed defenders squad, which is our armed police. And they went in and they terrorized the whole community. They terrorized children in cars where they, they put um, police blockades around the road and armed soldiers who you never see in New Zealand because our soldiers don't carry weapons. Our, our police, I'm sorry, don't carry weapons. They were out and dressed in black fatigues like, like a ninja commandos with assault rifles and they completely terrorised that community. And, you know, classic case, this, is the, this was a very indigenous community. So it's the same old story with the Anglo Empire that has stolen all of these people's resources, intimidates and, 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 and frightens them, and, and also over to, overturns the human rights and the social and political rights that we have at the drop of a, of, of a pin. I believe this will happen globally, and that'll happen in, in terms of controlling us in our own environments, and in America, people talk about this a lot. And then I think what will happen is there will be wars between Russia and the United States over habitat, over the, over the control of the last resources, and the most terrifying aspect of it is that there is a concept called a nuclear winter where people have researched and if you go to if you put go to YouTube and, and put it in as a search nuclear winter you'll find lots of presentations on it where people have hypothesized that if you detonated some nuclear weapons in some volcanoes you could throw enough sulfate up into the atmosphere that you would slow down the un, you know the, the overheating of the planet. And people would say, oh, yeah, that's nuts. They're not going to do that. Why would they use nuclear weapons to do that? The place would be uninhabitable afterwards. Well, that's not strictly true. It would be uninhabitable in the long term, but not in the short term. If, it's gonna, if global warming is going into that exponential heat spiking phase, the lunatics who are already experimenting at some degree or other with geoengineering will go for the ultimate geoengineering tool, which will be nuclear. Thank you for all of that explanation, Kevin. And I want to underscore uh, one person that you mentioned in that, and that's Dar Jamal, D-A-H-R-J-A-M-A-I-L. Uh, all you have to do to find him is to go to truthout.org, and uh, you'll find many, many articles uh, on climate by Dar, 
Um, he is, as Kevin says, the very best climate writer that we have at the moment. He's He really has his finger on the pulse, and I highly recommend him to all of you. Well, Kevin, um, I know that you're very familiar with my work and the book that Guy McPherson and I wrote last year, Extinction Dialogues, How to Live with Death in Mind. Um, and I know you're familiar with the focus that I place on emotional and spiritual preparation for responding to what promises to be catastrophic climate change. So in addition to disseminating fantastic information about abrupt climate change, how are you coping with it emotionally? I'll be really honest, and I will say to you, average, only average. When people say, say they normally, each, everyone says to each other, how are you? And people say, I'm fine. I don't believe most people are fine when they answer. I, I'm not fine, but I'm okay. How I see it is that I am absolutely heartbroken about the collapse of the biosphere and my the Pacific Ocean that has given me so much and who I'm intrinsically bonded to is dying before my very eyes. I'm really heartbroken about it and I'm sad. But I have a mission now. My mission is to warn as many people as I can about the impending Armageddon. And that gives me purpose and it, it it, it makes me feel good about what I'm doing and it makes me feel like I'm giving back to Gaia and, and to my community and to my conscience about where I'm at. I've been a part of the problem and I've made lots of mistakes. And because I, I'm a white male from one of the uh, wealthiest countries on the planet, my carbon footprint is higher than 99.999% of people on the planet. So I'm really culpable. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to spend the rest of my life and the rest of my resources in a mea culpa and a, and a giving back. That, and that, that really makes me feel better about the, the catastrophic situation we're in. That's really beautiful, Kevin. Um, I, I love that you know, perspective that um, this, is, this is the end on one level, but it's also the beginning of a new way of living, um, you know, with passion, purpose, and peace, um, you know, to make a commitment to give back, to wake up as many people as possible, to assist them in preparing on every level. Um, yeah, you know, what what more could we be doing? Well, I don't think much of anything, and I and I totally admire you for this. Now, I believe that you spend a lot of time sailing and immersing yourself in nature. Um, What kinds of activities in nature sustain you as you watch this huge unraveling? Uh, in In April this year, I was talked into going to Nepal by some friends of mine. And they were, they, we've done some big trips over the years, you know, collectively together. And, uh, this was one that other these other lovely darling friends of mine, uh, including my sister Kathleen, uh, they organised it and they said, "Okay, we're all going to go to Nepal. Come with us." And I said, "No, I'm not going to go this time. Uh, I'm I'm not going to be indulgent and indulge myself and and do this because I can because I can afford it. Um, I'm trying to reduce my carbon footprint and it's not a necessary trip." And they ambushed me. 
and this is how much they love me. I'm just so lucky. They bought the airline tickets and paid for the entire trip and the tour and deliberately didn't take out insurance. And they sent me the the tickets and for the whole thing, they put it all in my letterbox with a note saying, okay, we're all going. We've paid for your trip. If you don't come, all the money will be wasted and there'll be an empty seat on the plane and the carbon <laughs> footprint will be the same. Right. So I thought, okay, um, okay, I know when to give up. I know when I'm beaten. <laughs> so what I thought I would do is I would go to Nepal and, and take surgical dressings. And when I was up in the up in the mountains in the Himalayas, my plan was to line a colander with the dressings, put snow and ice in it, melt it through, and then capture the particulate that was in the would be in the surgical dressings and bring it back and get it analysed. And our, our darling friend Mimi Germain, who's a good mate of both of ours, uh, who's very involved in the anti-nuclear movement, I, I thought that what I could do is see if I could. Uh, trace any radionuclides that would be in it as well as the black soot from all of the pollution around uh, that area and see if we could trace it back to Fukushima Daiichi or anything else. So my, I, I was able to justify it to myself, and I know that is a little bit um, escapist that I did find a justification for that big trip. But I was going to do that and then see what we could prove. Well, we walked to 4,000 metres and, you know, 4,000 metres above sea level is pretty high, and I never once touched any ice. The, the snow line was another 500 metres above us. It was quite extraordinary. But what, that, what it was is I, I got to spend a week walking around in the Himalayas and in the, in the bush and talking to the, the absolutely wonderful Nepali people. So I do that. I walk in the wild, in the bush, and I spend as much time as I can beside, on, or underneath the ocean that I've, I love and I owe so much to. When I talk about doing what I'm doing now, I really am doing it for the Pacific Ocean because she's, she's guarded me and she's excited me and she's stimulated me for most of my life. And now she's dying. And it's, it's a bit of a, uh, a gene reflection to the ocean, what I'm doing now. That's beautiful, Kevin. Um, in case folks want to get in touch with you, what would be the best way to do that? Well, probably the easiest is on Facebook. I'm pretty easy to find. And uh, I do allow my email is on, uh, on my Facebook profile, and it's accessible if people wanted to e- email me who aren't on, on Facebook. But, yeah, I'm, I'm a pretty public uh, person these days, so if you want to find me, it'll be easy. Kevin Hester, H-E-S-T-E-R. You can find him on Facebook. Um, wonderful, wonderful talk with you, Kevin. Thank you so much for being here today. I so appreciate the work you're doing in the world, your passion and uh, your your willingness and determination to wake people up, and especially the youth. Um, I thank you for all of that. I would like to thank you back for all the work that you're doing. And I I really want to reiterate that one of the most special things that you're covering, I I cover the science and the Armageddon and all that, but you're covering the emotional responses to this um, predicament that we're in. And it's going to be really important. As the un, as the great unraveling takes gets builds more and more pace, the young people in this world are going to be really really angry, 
and justifiably so. And we have to develop strategies for how we can mitigate that and how we can guide them so that they they, they direct their anger in the right ways. Today, I'm going to go out on the streets of Auckland and we're going to protest against this corporate coup that is the TPPA. That's a really good thing for them to put their anger into. Because Absolutely. We don't want them putting it into each other Mm-mm. and into the innocence around us because this is a thing that happens that people become irrational. And our leaders are irrational. Our challenge now is for us to act rationally and to act honorably and to go down with our heads held high and our integrity intact. Well, I wish you really well with the demonstration today. May, may it go really well. And I want to remind everyone that in two weeks, speaking of emotions, uh, in two weeks on August 28th, my guest is going to be Stephen Jenkinson from Canada. Some of you know him as the Grief Walker. Uh, his website is orphanwisdom.com, and he's the author of a beautiful book called Die Wise. So until next week, everyone, uh, thank you, Kevin Hester. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you again next week on the Lifeboat Hour. Thank you very much for having me. And for any, anyone who's listening, thank you for your very, very valuable time. I appreciate it. Everybody knows the deal is rotten. Old Black Joe's still picking cotton for your ribbons and bows. Everybody knows that the dice are loaded Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed Everybody knows the war is over Everybody knows the good guys lost Everybody knows the fight was fixed The poor stay poor The rich get rich That's how it goes Everybody knows Everybody knows The boat is leaking Everybody knows The captain lied Everybody got this Broken feeling Like their father Or their dog just died Everybody Talking to their pockets Everybody wants a box of chocolates and a long stem rose.